Acts chapter 2. Come on in, church. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read together verses 42 through to 47. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have your word in front of us, and the reason we read it, and the reason that I'm teaching and preaching it this morning, is because you meant for this word to be a part of our lives, not in our thinking, but in our behavior. And so, Lord, I know you have things to say this morning, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, be able to use me to speak, and that the people would understand in this church that these are the words from your word, and not from my own mouth. And so, Lord, as understanding them coming directly from you, we pray, Lord, that your word would do its work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And good to see you. So there's a lot of talk these days on uh, evangelism and uh, discipleship. And in fact, lots of churches and denominations are revisiting discipleship and evangelism and asking the question, how can we do it in a more effective way? Uh, our own de- my own denomination, our own denomination, uh, the Free Methodist Church in Canada, we're revisiting this ourselves. And I, and I hope and trust we'll come up with a, with a good solution, a good conclusion to it. But the reason why why we are revisiting it, and the reason why many churches and denominations are revisiting this, is because they believe they're not doing as good a job as they could. It's not that they're not doing it. Of course, every church and every denomination would say, yes, we're doing discipleship. Yes, we're doing evangelism. But there seems to be a growing trend that says, we're not doing as good a job as we could. Now, this might seem somewhat of a surprise to you, because if you were to go into any bookstore, Christian bookstore, you would see lined on the shelves, book after book after book on discipleship and evangelism. And with all those resources, you would assume that we would do a better job at discipleship and evangelism. Now, the reason why some of these churches and denominations are revisiting it is probably one of a variety of reasons. Either they they want to improve on what they're already doing, maybe they, they say they're doing it, but in actual fact, For one reason or another, they're not really doing it all that well. Or, of the books that they're reading on the subject matter, they're really not worth uh, the money or the pages that they're written on. Um, I happen to uh, have read probably about three or four really good books that are really helpful, but I'd say the majority of the the ones that I've seen on the shelf 
uh, are probably better to be hucked into the trash. But there are some good ones out there. And if you want to know the ones I've read, I'd be glad to let you know. <clears throat> this morning, though, we're going to take a look at the book of Acts. And um, this is not to, to, to say that this is going to be the superior way because we're looking at the Bible and all those other books of boy, they're just written stuff. No, those are Christian authors and Christian leaders who are doing their best to use Scripture to come up with an effective model. And some of them are very effective and there's great advancement of the kingdom of God out there. But my suggestion to you this morning is if we're going to look at any model, why not start with the book of Acts? Why not start with the early church? Now, I'm going to suggest to you this morning this model, but not as prescriptive, as descriptive. It's, it's not prescriptive. In other words, this is what you have to do exactly, but it's rather descriptive of a very, very effective model. The reason why it's not prescriptive is Jesus never said, here's what you do in a church. What you do is you start out with a song, then you have a greeting, and then you have a few more songs, and you pray together, somebody preaches, and then you have a dialogue afterwards. None of this is ever actually stated from Jesus Christ. He lays out the principles of what we are to use to grow in our relationship with Him and to evangelize the world. But those principles were applied into a model that the Acts, early Acts Church uh, provides us uh, with, and it's a very effective model. So, in my estimation, I would suggest that it's a, it's a good model to have a look at. I mean, there's lots of great models out there, and the early church uh, in the book of Acts here, I think, is a great model. Now, as we look at our text here this morning, uh, in Acts chapter 2, it's essentially the first time we get a look at what the early church was made up of in terms of how their church actually functioned. Now, what's just happened as we pick up our text in verse 42 is that thousands have just been added. Thousands have just been added uh, to the kingdom of God, 3,000 in fact. And so the church is now flooded with believers. And after embracing Jesus and rejecting uh, their old way of life, we now find this new community of believers. And the question is, what are they going to be like? How are they going to function? How are they going to operate? How are they going to use their time? And so we pick up here, beginning in verse 42, that right off the bat it says, they were continually devoted. And they were devoted to four things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, to breaking the bread, and to prayer. Now you'll notice here the way that it's worded. They are described as actually being this way, not aspiring to this. They weren't aspiring to be dedicated to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They actually were this way. They were already devoted to this. And so first off, it says that they were devoted to the apostles' uh, teaching. Now, in order, to be, in order for this to work in the community, there's two parties that are needed. One, you need the apostles to teach. And secondly, you need people who are actually willing to hear from it. And no better uh, leaders and teachers and preachers of God's way do we have at this point than the apostles themselves. These are the guys you want to be preaching and teaching. You want the guys who can handle God's word accurately to be the guys who are preaching and teaching. And it's no mistake, therefore, when you get to the qualifications of the elders in places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that they've got to be the kind of men who can handle God's word accurately. The apostles, of course, were brilliant at this, and so the people were dedicated to, these, um, to this brilliant teaching that was, that was handed to them through Jesus Christ, then to the apostles, and now to the people here. But the first party that had to... Uh, in order for this to occur to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, you need teachers. 
And so the apostles were obviously dedicated to teaching them. But the people were also dedicated to learning from them. But more than just learning, they were to observe them. You remember what Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew chapter 28 when he sent out uh, the apostles? And he says, here's what, you're, here's what you're supposed to do. You go out and you baptize, uh, spread the message of me everywhere, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You see, Christianity is an observable way of life, not an understanding. Christianity is a way of life that it's observed. We're going to get into that a little bit more in the, in, as we go along here. But it starts out with understanding, and so they have to put themselves underneath the apostles. Because if their understanding is wrong, everything's wrong. We often say that in church, that we have this format of, of observation less than an application, a way of looking at Scripture. And when you ask people, say, what's the most important? Is it, is it the observing of the text? Is it the lessons that we get from the text? Or is it the application? Somebody say, what's the application? It's got to be because it's got to get into our lives. But people say, no, 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 it's, it's the lessons. It's what really does God want us to learn from it? And I would say, no, it's the observation. You get that part wrong, you get the understanding wrong, everything else is wrong. But they're dedicated to the apostles' teaching, and these guys were committed to teaching other people to observe the way of the Lord. So the content of their discipleship was the teachings that they were continually devoted to. Now, for the people, this means you've got to give airtime. You've got to give airtime to the teachings of Jesus. You've got to give airtime to the teachings of the apostles. But there are two ways of giving airtime to the scriptures, as we have them in front of us. You can read them as an accomplishment of spiritual discipline. Godly people read the Bible, and if I want to be a godly person, I need to read the Bible. And so you read the Bible. But it's more of a discipline. And so maybe there's a daily reading, or maybe you can finish through the Bible in a year, or maybe you can finish through the Bible in a month. But if it's seen as a spiritual accomplishment, it's completely empty, and God wants really nothing to do with it. The second way you can uh, be devoted to the teachings of the apostles, or the teachings of Jesus, is you can read the Bible in order to further cement your understanding of God, your relationship with Him, and the way you are to live out in this life, according to those scriptures. That's the way that God wants you to be dedicated to the apostles' teaching, or to the teachings of Jesus. So you can give air time to it and you can say, man, it was really good this last year. I finished through the Bible in a year. I don't really think God cares if you finish through the Bible in a year, although I think it's, it's a good idea. I think he more cares is when you were reading it, what were you reading and what were you thinking? Were you thinking that this is something that needs to transform your life and putting it into application? Or was at the end you say, I finished it on day 365, Chad. Now to my own shame, I remember in Bible college, that uh, I don't know where I came up with this, but I got to read five chapters a day. If I'm going to be a guy in Bible college, in Bible training, I ought to be able to read the, you know, the scriptures five chapters a day. And so, of course, I'd leave it and leave it. I wasn't one of these guys who woke up at four in the morning and read because I could never wake up there. No Bible college student does that. <laughs> but at night, uh, at the last day, I haven't read my five chapters. So I went the Bible. Everybody's gone, is in my room. I went the Bible. And man, I was just nodding and struggling. And, and I'd kind of nod off and I'd go, I've got to finish this chapter. And I'd finish the fifth chapter and come out. Well, really, those moments of readings really didn't help me one bit. 
I was reading him as a spiritual accomplishment, and I think sometimes this becomes a part of the Christian life, and God really doesn't care. He really doesn't care for your spiritual accomplishments. He wants you to read the scriptures with the understanding to improve your understanding of God, to increase in your relationship with Him, and to better understand how to live out Christianity in this world. This is what's going to facilitate Christian growth, because you're believing His words are true and applicable for you. That's why Jesus told the apostles, you tell the people that you're teaching to observe all that I've commanded you. So the early church was committed to the apostles' teaching, but it also says here that they were committed to fellowship. Now the church these days, we commonly use the word fellowship to describe any church get-together. The fellowship room sometimes in churches is a place where people set aside a place where they can go and uh, they eat and they hang out and drink coffee and things like this. Um, after church, often they'll say there'll be a time of fellowship. It really means we're going to eat and we're going to have some drink. But what is biblical fellowship? What does biblical fellowship really look like? And therefore, what would it have looked like for these people to be devoted to fellowship? What would it have looked like? Now, from the Greek word, don't be impressed, you can look it up. And if you have the app, you can look it up right now as I'm preaching to you right now. So it's not, don't be impressed by this. But uh, the Greek word is koinonia for fellowship. And it's a, it's a togetherness based on a common interest. And if you're taking notes, uh, you don't have to turn here, but uh, you should jot this down. This is 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. Have a listen to this in terms of fellowship. What we have, ser- what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In order to have felt, we are proclaiming this to you in order that you would have fellowship with us. But interestingly enough, he says, and if you have fellowship with us, you immediately have fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ. So if you are going to be together with us, there's a sense in which we are all going to be together with Jesus Christ and God the Father. This helps us better understand what fellowship probably looked like in Acts chapter 2. I don't think they were just talking about get-togethers, but rather the kind of get-togethers that happens with people devoted to God, where God actually becomes a part of your time together. And here's what I mean. It can be as intentional as maybe sharing God's Word together, or times of prayer can be that intentional. Or maybe it's conversations that they were having about wrestling through God's way. Or maybe more simply about the way they treated others when they were together. How did they treat one another when they were together? With self-sacrifice, love, and their conversations. Now I would say this to you, that this is one of the safest places I go to every week. This place is very safe for me. And here's what I mean. I can't think of a time that I left church where I said to Jody, I was really upset this morning because this person took a strip off me, they treated me unfairly, spoke an unkind word to me, rejected me, excluded me, something like that. It doesn't happen. It's Therefore, it's a very safe place. But part of that fellowship that we have with one another is the way we treat one another. And so when you come through these doors this morning, I hope that you think this is a great safe place I can worship God and there's no fear. There's no fear of somebody treating me in an inappropriate, ungodly kind of way. 
And so it could have been that part of fellowship that was characteristic about their get-togethers. But based on the description from Acts chapter 2, I have a hard time believing this is simply a get-together. I think as 1 John puts it, if you have fellowship with us, you're going to have fellowship with the Father. And we ought to be able to say that with one another. If you have fellowship with me, you're going to have fellowship with Jesus Christ and the Father. From the way that I treat you, from maybe the way we look at God's Word, to maybe the conversations we have about wrestling through His way, maybe to intentional times of Bible study or prayer, but that's what it looks like in Christian fellowship. I imagine that God looks around at our homes and he asks himself, who's going to invite me to be a part of their home? Who's going to invite me to be a part of their home this afternoon or this evening? It doesn't mean you have to open up your Bibles. That might be something you do. But who's going to invite me to be a part of their homes in the way that they fellowship? In the way that they treat one another? In their, in their conversations? And God longs to be a part of those. This past week, and I'm just taking this, this last week as an example. I've spoken with several of you in this church. We've, uh, we've spoken together in Bible study, some of you, uh, after church. Uh, we've met in coffee shops, one-on-one. -on -one. Others of you, I've spoken on the phone or I've been spoken by text or email. And at some point in those conversations, we were either talking about the Lord or talking about how it is to live out Christianity. That's Christian fellowship. That's the way it normally should be. Now, do we always talk about Christianity every time we get together? Of course not. Because sometimes it's just the way we treat one another. But in this church, you have not compartmentalized God talking in church with a Sunday event. You have not done this. And from all my conversations I have with Andrew, that's the same with Genesis House. Christianity has not been compartmentalized to this event. It's become a way of life. Now, could we excel more in this area? Of course we could. But I wonder how pleased God must be in our conversations and in our homes on a weekly basis. I certainly know from this church that God must be very proud. Again, we could excel more. I know this. We can always excel more. But my guess, if you were to hang out in Peter's house, because Peter had a home, and Mary, she had a home, I imagine if you were to hang out in their homes, it would have looked like genuine Christian fellowship, the way we're talking about So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is the word of God. They were devoted, devoted to fellowship. But it says here they're also devoted to the breaking of bread. Now there's two kind of possibilities here. There's two possibilities. One is that they were dedicated to the Lord's Supper or communion. Or two, they were dedicated to some kind of just a regular meal together. My hunch and my leaning is that this is communion. It's really hard to tell from this text right here. But my hunch is this is the communion, the Lord's Supper. And the reason why I would suggest that is four, four verses later it talks about get-togethers around meals. So my hunch here is that this is a dedication to communion. And finally, they were devoted to prayer. A common phrase in other parts of the Bible as well, people are devoted to prayer. And prayer is essentially eliciting a response uh, from God. It's praying to God and eliciting a response back from Him in accordance with the, with the request that you have. Now, in Scripture, there's effective prayer and there's ineffective prayer. Effective prayer is when you pray according to God's will. So if you ask anything according to His will, we know He hears us. And if we know He hears us, whatever we ask, we know we've received those requests we've asked from Him. This is 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 
It's a promise to say, if you want to have effective prayer, pray according to what God wants. A great example of this, if you have time this later this afternoon, is look at 2 Chronicles chapter 1. God says to Solomon, you can ask for whatever you want. Whatever you want, Solomon. And Solomon says, well, what I'd really like is I'd like wisdom to lead your people. And God says, that's exactly what I'd like you to ask for. So the question is, is when we ask God, when we're in prayer with Him, will the answer to our prayer requests advance His kingdom more? Or will it advance our own kingdom more? And I think when we're about prayer and we're self-consumed, it's really about our own situation, about our own kingdom. But God wants us to think larger than that and praying according to His will. Again, Second Chronicles is a is a great Second Chronicles one is a great chapter on that. Now, ineffective prayers is meaningless repetition, and I don't need to tell you some of the some of the uh, the, the, the um, religious groups out there that use repetition. They, they repeat these words over and over again, and by repeating them over and over again, they feel like they're they're making some kind of headway with God. Jesus says it's meaningless. Don't do that. So they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, and they're devoted uh, to prayer. But they also had a corporate understanding of their possessions, and we pick this up in 45 and 44 and 45. Those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them, uh, sharing them all as anyone might have need. Now, although Jesus never taught this specifically, uh, nor do we have this in any New Testament church, any other New Testament church, this is still a very good model. Acts records these, these Christians as still having homes. So the people who were selling homes, they actually still had homes. Like Peter and Mary, they still had homes. And so my strong hunch and my suggestion would be is that these people had extra property that they would sell and give to anybody who would have need. Uh, an excellent expression of generosity to brothers and sisters in need as they held their possession, their possessions in a common understanding more than they did a private understanding. I think we have much to learn on this. Is, our, is my car my car? Is my house my house? Or how do I understand the use of my home and my, and my possessions? Do I understand them in a corporate way or in a private way? And from my limited perspective, I would do better at understanding them more in a common way, and I think we all would. There's something to be said about this model here. So it says in verse 46 that they were, day by day they were together. Not a reference to week by week. I'll see you on Sunday, and I'll see you again a week from Sunday. You'd say farewell and, uh, and uh, have a good week, and we'll see you next week. No, these people were meeting day by day. They were together. There was a real sense that these Christians were together a lot. Praising God, fellowshipping, sharing meals. <clears throat> now let me give you a few words on this. It's really important. And this is actually not in my notes. In Judges chapter 2, the people of God got into a lot of trouble. They got into a lot of trouble because they wanted to be like the nations around them. And they allowed the nations to intermingle with them. And the more they, the more they intermingled with the nations around them, the secular nations around them, the more those secular nations influenced their behavior and the way that they lived. There's something to be said about being in Christian fellowship on a regular basis. 
Why? Because we influence one another. We influence one another. We encourage one another to remain true to Jesus Christ and to further our relationship with Him. When I have conversations with secular people, when I hang out with them, often I'm encouraged to do something sinful. Often. Whether I'm encouraged to gossip, to tear somebody down, whether I'm encouraged to cheat the system so I can have more money in my back pocket. There's all kinds of ways that my secular friends encourage me to sin. I don't get that from you. I don't get that from you. And if we were to take Judges 2 as an example, it's dangerous when we're spending more of our time with secular people than with Christian people. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not suggesting we should not be spending time with secular people, because we're going to get into that right now. But it's suggesting this. From uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, where we encourage one another daily, to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26, don't forsake the gathering together of believers. There's a reason why we need to be together. Because there's a time we encourage one another. Sometimes we correct one another. Last week we had a, even a little, a little disagreement with somebody, uh, with something that I preached. This is good stuff. Because we're working through Christianity together. Sometimes we need correction. Sometimes we need rebuke. Sometimes we need encouragement. But when you're, the more you are together with genuine Christians, the more you'll be encouraged to maintain your Christian walk and hopefully to move it forward. And then it says where they met. It says they met in the temple and from house to house. Now, a brief comment on this. Um, you don't need a church building in order to have a church. Had to say that, and um, it's going to be one of the lessons. Uh, but you don't need a church building in order to have a church. Now, the temple was available to them. Not that they built it. Herod built it. And Jesus said, by the way, this temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus wasn't going to say, but, but here's the thing. When the temple's destroyed, you better build a bunch of buildings. Because you need to replace that temple. So it's going to be destroyed, I'm going to tear it down. But apart from the temple, they were meeting house to house. Whatever was available is where they met. And later on in the book of Acts, Paul, he, he met at the school of Tyrannus. I don't know what this looked like, but some kind of a place where schooling happened underneath this guy called Tyrannus. Paul must have used it as, as a separate time, either to rent it or he was offered it. And he says, oh, here's a building, I'm going to use it. Here's a Boys and Girls Club. We're going to use it. Here's Jeff's home. We're going to use it. Whatever's available, that's what we do. We use what's available. In fact, the New Testament only makes references to churches that actually met in homes. I don't know if you knew that or not. Now, having said that, homes aren't the key either. Meeting together is. The buildings we meet in ought to be negotiable. But meeting together is not. Meeting together is non-negotiable. But meeting together in particular buildings, that is negotiable. I spent some time in, in, uh, in London uh, this, this past May. And um, some of the people who are uh, dealing with the, the church over there, in the Anglican church, people are more set on the buildings they have than they are meeting together. And it's quite remarkable, these brilliant buildings, that many of them are empty. Many of them are empty. Because people are so fixated on the building and not the character that when the character goes, why would you meet together anymore? Of course, it's not the state of the, the whole UK church. There's a fantastic, at least from my perspective, I don't know where you all attend church, but where, where I attended church in the Anglican movement, there's a great movement of God happening. But there's many churches that are empty there because people are, are so fixated on the buildings. And the crazy thing is, is the government has got involved and you cannot tear these buildings down now. 
So here's, here's the cool thing, is you've got all these buildings that are supposed to be dedicated to church, but nobody's in them. What a great model, what a great tool, that if you've got a church of believers, here's a building, let's go use it. But again, the point is, the point is this, we don't need church buildings in order to do church. We just need to meet together, wherever that is. And then, of course, they, they shared their meals together. Now, sharing meals together, this is something that we started when we started this church in the beginning. Why do we, share, why do, we do a meal afterwards? We do a meal afterwards because you guys are all hungry, and we don't want you guys to go. We want you guys to stick around, and we want you guys to talk with one another. Now, I'm sure Andrew can attest to this, but in our church... When people have met together afterwards, now sometimes we'll talk about golf, and me, I sometimes I do talk about golf, or the beginning really of the football season, which is happening today, or the Jays game that's very important against the Red Sox this afternoon. So sometimes I'll talk about those things, even from the pulpit. <laughs> but other times, in this church, I've seen people off crying in a corner as they're talking to somebody else and somebody's praying for them. <clears throat> Somebody else is laying the burden that they've been carrying all week with somebody else, and they carry it together. Sometimes others casual conversations about what's going on with the sermon. Why do, we, why do we keep you around? Not to give you a smorgasbord afterwards, although this morning it's going to be very yummy. But it's to keep you around so that we continue in Christian fellowship. That's why. And that's what meals together ought to facilitate. So in the first place, these people were being very effective at discipleship. It's in a very effective model. But they're also extremely good at sharing the message of Jesus. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now flip a few pages over. It's a description of the early church again in Acts chapter 5. And verse 13. It says, none of the rest dared to meet, dared to associate with them. So it's talking about their meeting and uh, their meetings together. They're all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were held in very high esteem, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Now here's the thing. There's no record here of secular people being at their Christian gatherings. And yet, they held them in very high esteem. They held them in very high favor. But they didn't meet with them. And yet, in chapter 2, verse 47, and 514, we find that multitudes are becoming Christians. So how are they becoming Christians if they're not meeting with them in their Christian gatherings? The non-Christians were not there. Multitudes coming to the Lord. How? Well, we know they weren't becoming Christians at the Christian service. So evangelism must have been happening out in the marketplace of life. Around dinner tables, in homes, at the office maybe, at the market, everywhere. Now, why were so many people coming to the Lord? I love the sequence in verse 47 and, and then in 5, 13, and 14. I love the sequence. It first of all talks about their credibility. It first of all talks about them having favor with these people. And then after that it talks about them becoming Christians. The people were credible to secular people. They were held in very high esteem. Now it's, it's very difficult for me to hear 
the way that most of my secular friends, and I'm sure many of your secular friends, talk about the church these days. Because they talk about it as a bunch of hypocrites. Now, maybe, maybe they're just using that as an excuse, and sometimes I'm sure they do. But it ought not to be said of us. Can you imagine if we, if we, had a, if we held a, a, a conference on evangelism? And in that conference, I were, to, mo- I were prom- to promote to you the best way to evangelize the world is to have a good reputation among secular people. Good reputation, the Lord added to the number. Having favor with all the men, they were adding numbers, multitudes. There's this credibility first to be held in high esteem. There's only one way to do this. To live your regular, sold-out, godly lives in front of secular people. That's the only way. To live your regular, sold-out, godly lives in front of them, in proximity with them. Now, the early church in Acts so clearly understood that Christianity was a way of life that, did you know this, all throughout the book of Acts, do you know what Christianity was really called? It was called the way. All throughout the book of Acts, you can have a look through it. All throughout the book of Acts, Christianity was not called the Free Methodists. It wasn't called the Baptists. It wasn't called the Pentecostals. It was called the way. And not just it was called the way by themselves. It was called the way by secular people. Paul, before he became a Christian, and his name was Saul, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, he persecuted the way. Not the understanding. He persecuted the way. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 23, those in Ephesus, and they were making all kinds of money with idols and stuff, and Paul began sharing some different things, and so they decided to go against the way there. That's their understanding of Christianity, the way. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 24 and verse 22, Felix, he says, I'm very well acquainted with the way. Now, I love that definition. So if we were to change this church instead of Pine Ridge, we call it the way. Is that going to change anything? No. This is not about a term. It's not about changing terms. This is about an understanding that ended up with that term. Because Christianity was a way of life. They clearly lived it out in front of other people. That's why these people held them in high esteem. That's why they had very high favor with all the people. It's because Christianity was the way they lived out in the marketplace of life. However, people cannot become Christians unless you tell them. You've got to tell them something about Jesus Christ. It's one thing to live it out, but you've got to tell them. How can they become believers unless they hear? And therefore, how lovely are the feet of those who bring the good news, Romans chapter 10. Somebody's got to say it. And we've talked about this before in this church, about becoming a laborer. Not just having spiritual conversations, not just having favor with people, but getting to the point where actually sharing the message of Jesus Christ whereby if these secular people were to never see you again, they would know exactly how to become a Christian. Obviously, these people were doing it. Again, they weren't becoming Christians in a church service. It must have been happening out there in the marketplace of life. The early church is a fantastic example of what it is to live for Jesus in discipleship and evangelism. Multitudes, therefore, are turning their lives over to the Lord as they interacted with this highly esteemed, highly favorable group of people in their homes, in their workplace, the market, in their neighborhoods, any place where regular life occurred in society. The key is that the people were the evangelistic tool, not the church service. 
It was the way regular Christians were living their lives side by side with those in the world. And when they lived side by side with them, we're not talking about they knew how to sing songs, they knew how to raise their hands or shut their eyes or talk in Christian talk. If we're talking about living their lives in front of them, as Jesus said, to teach them to observe all that I've commanded to, these guys end up in high esteem and high favor. It must have been that they were living out Jesus Christ and the way of Christianity in front of them regularly. They'd live out the way of Christianity in terms of forgiving people, in terms of not retaliating, in terms of non-gossip, in terms of their marriages, in terms of their personal finances, in terms of how they actually worked, in terms of how they parented, in terms of their generosity, in terms of how they functioned in friendships, to how they functioned in overall self-sacrifice, Christianity was not an event that these guys came to once a week on Sunday. It was the way they lived out that was observable and therefore was held in high esteem. Now to the Christians in the book of Acts, this was just normal life. This is just normal way we live our lives. But to those watching, it was something different. Something worth respecting. Something that caused them to hold these Christians in high esteem and in high favor. Something that then gave these Christians the right to speak about it. As to why their lives are so different. And although, all that I would say is this, may it be said of us. Now I have a few lessons that I hope uh, you wouldn't miss. And I'm going to put them up behind me here. challenge in that area. Alright. Uh, lessons. In order to observe the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, regular airtime must be given to them with the spirit of readiness to act. So, you, you can't say you're dedicated to the apostles' teaching, and you can't say I'm dedicated to the teachings of Jesus if you're not putting yourself in proximity with them. There's got to be regular airtime with them. And again, this is not so that you can check off some kind of spiritual accomplishment like I was doing in Bible college. It's for the purpose of a readiness to act. Because Christianity and the Word of God was meant to transform our character, not to transform our heads, to transform our character. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, I'm writing all these things, all these things I've said to you, apostles, and you're to teach these others to observe them. Not just to learn them, to observe them. And so, in order to observe the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, or be devoted to them, as we find here in Acts 2, we've got to give regular airtime to them, with the spirit of readiness to act on them. Uh, secondly, 
one of the key, key ways to Christian growth is to have our fellowship with God naturally spill over into our fellowship with one another. Now, we shouldn't really need instruction on this. This should just be normal. But I think it's a good reminder for us. One of the keys to Christian growth is to have our fellowship with God naturally spill over into our fellowship with one another. Now, let me just give, let me just have you guys give me a show of hands here. Um, apart from the church service, would you say that you regularly get encouragement from the Christian community that you hang out with? If that's you, just raise your hand. You regularly get encouragement from the Christian community. See, this is what it is. This is what it is to be a Christian church. It's not to just meet on Sunday morning, but to have church and fellowship as a regular way of life. And it's what happens is that when we get together, our fellowship just naturally spills over. The way we treat each other, the way we speak, the way we wrestle through questions of life. This is just naturally what it is to be a part of the Christian community. It's to let your fellowship with God naturally spill over. Doesn't mean you can't talk about the Chiefs uh, winning this afternoon, but you, you know, it's something that um, don't be preoccupied with, as I am sometimes. <laughs> Thirdly, had to put this in here, and you guys just all smile. We can go over it quick, but although they are not detrimental, church buildings are not necessary for Christianity to flourish. We all know this, and I know I'm singing to the choir, but it's just good to have it down, and it's right here. They meant the temple and from house to house. The temple got destroyed. It didn't really matter. The temple gets destroyed. It didn't affect Christianity because Christianity was not based on buildings. It was based on regularly meeting together. Just one of those ones that I have to put in there. And then finally, credibility of character accompanied by a willingness to share the message of Jesus in the marketplace of life is an effective way to spread Christianity. It's not the way. It's just a way. That's the way that these guys... Now, what's interesting is just before this, they had a type of Billy Graham-type evangelistic service, if you will. It wasn't necessarily a service, but Peter preaches and 3,000 come to Christ. So what I'm not suggesting is that um, crusades or, or um, Christian, Christian services are bad places to, for people to come to Christ. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that in this early model, with these people... It would seem like your credibility, in other words, the way you live out Christianity, tied in with your willingness to share the message of Jesus. Man, that's an effective model. It says in Acts 2 and Acts 5, multitudes were coming to Christ. But before the multitudes were coming to Christ, on both occasions, the credibility of these people, high esteem and, and high favor. Now, I've spoken enough uh, this morning, and... Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts or your comments. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Mm -hmm. it is, uh, it's always amazing how four or five verses can be so gem full of, uh, of a way of life for us to live. And we are grateful for the Spirit of God moving in Dan to uh, reveal truth to us. And it's uh, undisputable from the text you're designed for us as Christians to follow your word and the way you created life for us just to show the world that there is a difference to be connected to you and uh, that you have a transforming power through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, I just ask, Lord, that this uh, message is something that we take away for the rest of the, the year here as we consider our lives at the workplace yeah. 
in family, uh, you pri in our private lives when no one's looking, um, just whether we're private or public, Lord, that uh, your spirit and our love for you is what motivates us to be obedient to you, not for any uh, extra brownie points, but just as a love expression to you. Thank you again, Lord, for the combination of the two churches here today that you built, and um, I hope, uh, well, I know you're you're proud of us, but I know also you still desire more for us. So, Lord, maybe we this message today is another kick in the in the pants to move forward to church growth in the way that you are proud. Yeah. So we pray this in Christ's name and thank you for uh, the Carnage House uh, getting us going, and we wouldn't be here as a church plant without. Um, Pine Ridge House support, and I just uh, want to praise you for that too.